0: Seltzer Kings podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? But stay tuned for an all new episode of Watts Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network, available on all podcast platforms. Well, Gavin, I guess I'm just not a very good commander. This isn't the Navy, and I don't know who I would send a letter to. Ass. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. That whole Garn St. Germain Depository Institutions Act? What the hell were you thinking? I am your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, April 3rd, 2020. We're still preoccupied with 1985 Part 2, Blame It on the Rain, I guess, edition of the show where we talk about how the 80s were so much 80s that we broke the 80s. Stay tuned. The... What the Hell are You Thinking Podcast is brought to you by Bosky Boys, the investment advice podcast. Are you looking to maximize your trading portfolio? Looking to predict movements in the market that will keep you ahead of them? Because it's only insider trading if someone catches you doing it. And look, no one even cares. The Bosky Boys speak with insiders, excuse us, experts. On what's going on in the markets, who is hot and who is not. Never let a big opportunity pass you by with the Bosky Boys. In January, we spoke with Senator Kelly Loeffler, and our listeners made a killing in communications and healthcare stocks. So can you, the Bosky Boys podcast, because being arrested for insider trading just isn't something that happens anymore. And the law is man's feeble attempt to set down the principles. Decency. Decency. And decency is not a deal. It isn't an angle or a contract or a hustle. Decency. Decency is what your grandmother taught you. It's in your bones, now you go home, go home and be decent people. When last we left them, the 1980s were riding high on a wash of money, optimism, bad taste and greed. It was like somebody let the designer from Mar-a-Lago create an entire decade from scratch. You know, that's a a little tacky. Tacky? Yes, that's tacky. All the white folks, well, a lot of the white folks, were doing well. Or at least, like, looked like they were doing well. And everyone was wearing, frankly, an unnecessary amount of pink neon print clothing. Do you mind if I talk to you about diarrhea? I I just want to say two words about it. Pepto-Bismol, Pepto-Bismol controls common diarrhea. It relieves that misery and the nausea that you can get along with it. Pepto-Bismol coats, soothes, it protects. It relieves that nausea, makes you feel an awful lot better. Next time you get common diarrhea, you'll thank me for the Pepto-Bismol. It seemed like the good times would never end, but underneath it all, something wasn't right. The center was starting to crumble, fault lines were beginning to tremble, and everyone knew the end of the good times were near. The deep cultural fear manifested in a song steeped in dread and despair. It was one of the bleakest songs ever to climb the charts, ever. Look at that shit man, it is fucking dark. Ain't got no place to lay your head, somebody came and took your bed. Landlords say your rent is late, he may have to litigate. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make you smile. I mean Bobby McFerrin literally commits suicide in the video we're watching the video, and Bobby's in the window, and we're all shouting, Don't jump! And then boom! He jumped. Next scene, Bobby's up in heaven. Or is it hell? And that's exactly how people were starting to think about the 1980s. Well, I don't know if everyone was. It's what I always think about when I hear the song, and what I always think about in the 1980s. Because underneath the bright pink, shiny chrome, and corpo pop, everything was rotten as fuck. And by the end of the decade, it was abundantly clear How rotten it really was. All you really need to know about why Generation X is so, uh, so, uh, Gen X is contained in how fast and how big the 80s fell apart. And it all started with the same goddamn dude that made everyone so fucking optimistic in the first place. Reagan? Reagan. We probably should have gotten wise to the reality of the Reagan administration being crooked as fuck when the first let broke in 1983, when it came out that in the late weeks of the 1980 election, somehow, Jimmy Carter's debate playbook found its way into the hands of the Ronald Reagan team. how did that happen? No one actually knows. All we know is that the Reagan chief of staff, James Baker, swore under oath that he received the book from campaign manager William Casey, who vehemently denied knowing anything about anything like that, Casey, who was just getting ready to settle into his job as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, flat out nuh on the entire thing. It was pretty clear by the time of the debate that Reagan was going to win and having the book probably didn't impact the election, but the revelation ought to have told us that something was not quite right in the Reagan White House. But hey, you know, we were all going to get DeLoreans, man. There was the housing and urban development scandal, where public housing bids were rigged in favor of GOP donors, who won the contracts, then came in and built substandard housing that in many cases still hasn't been corrected. You know how it was for black and brown people back then, it's still pretty much like that now. One of Reagan's chiefs of staff was convicted for lying to Congress and perjury before a grand jury about illegal lobbying activities by former administration officials. There were numerous scandals, like 20, in the Environmental Protection Agency largely around the Superfund dispersals to GOP donors and then the lies to cover that up. Operation Ill Wind and FBI Sting that netted two Assistant Secretaries of the Navy and one Air Force se- Assistant Secretary for accepting bribes in military procurement contracts. The Wedtech scandal involving a different defense procurement bribes. This one actually nailed Ed Meese, the Attorney General, who resigned but was never convicted. The Reagan administration was so fucking corrupt How corrupt was it? Well, it was so corrupt that I'm gonna have to turn to George Carlin to sum it up for you. 225 of them so far. 225 different people in the Ronald Reagan administration have either quit, been fired, been arrested, indicted, or convicted of either breaking the law or violating the ethics code. 225 of them, and Edwin Meese alone Edwin Meese alone has been investigated by three separate special prosecutors. And there's a fourth one waiting for him in Washington right now. Oh, when you think about it, though, it is pretty cute how people used to go to jail for government corruption, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, those were good days. But the granddaddy of them all, the one that went all the way to the top, and the one that everyone thought ought to get the Gipper impeached was none other than (sighs) (sighs) Iran-Contra. Why does everyone do that? Yawn, I mean. They did it then, they sure as fuck do it now, but Iran-Contra was huge fucking deal, man. Involving hostages, illegal arms shipments, funneling money to Central American terrorists, lies and cover-ups that went all the way to the Oval Office. Yeah, so? Man, if this had been written for a fucking the big screen, it would've been a blockbuster starring a young and still handsome Tom Cruise. And it all starts with a bunch of hostages in Lebanon. In the 80s, terrorists moved from skyjacking planes for fun and profit to taking hostages, mostly for profit only, because it wasn't fun for anyone anymore. Western businessmen, government employees were snatched off the street and held until someone paid their ransom, which, of course, we did not do, because America does not negotiate with terrorists, even though we totally do, and we totally did. Yeah, she so totally does. And all of these hostage taking made Ron look bad because he promised that America would kick ass and take names and these hostage takers were leaving asses unkicked and names untaken. So, he directed his crew to, quote, do something about it, unquote. At the same time, down in Nicaragua, the CIA had a classic problem a Cold War problem. After decades of corruption and abuse, the people of Nicaragua overthrew their right-wing CIA-backed government in favor of a socialist regime that was supported by the Soviets. The socialists were actually no better than the CIA right-wingers, but hey, at least felt like they had a choice in it. Unlike the good old days when the CIA could just swoop in with a group of American-trained locals or and other quasi-professionals. that. You know, usually wore army uniforms, and get shot up on the beach, now there were laws preventing that. There were also laws preventing the United States from funding a revolution from behind the scenes. Reagan didn't like that, and he told his crew to, quote, do something about it, unquote. What did they come up with? Well, the best and brightest in the administration came up with a convoluted plan to sell embargoed weapons to Iran in exchange for the release of hostages by the Iranian-backed kidnappers. Sounds simple, right? It wasn't. This is from the Wikipedia entry on the Iran-Contra scandal. Quote, Soon after taking office in 1981, the Reagan administration secretly and abruptly changed United States policy. Secret Israeli arms sales and shipments to Iran began in that year, even as in public, the Reagan administration presented a different face and aggressively promoted a campaign to stop transfers, the worldwide transfers of military goods to Iran, the New York Times explained. Iran, at that time, was in dire need of arms and spare parts for its American-made arsenal to defend itself against Iraq, which it had attacked in September 1980, while Israel, a US ally, was interested in keeping the war between Iran and Iraq going to ensure that these two potential enemies remain preoccupied with each other. Major General Avraham Tamir, a high-ranking Israeli Defense Ministry official said in 1981, there was a oral agreement to allow the sale of spare parts to Iran, this was based on an understanding with Secretary Alexander Haig, which which a Haig advisor later denied. This account was confirmed by a former senior American diplomat with few modifications. The diplomat claimed that Ariel Sharon violated and that Haig backed away from it. And a former high-level CIA official who saw the reports of arms sales to Iran by Israel in the early 1980s estimated that the total was about $2 billion a year, but also said that the degree to which it was sanctioned, he didn't know. Bullshit. In short, the United States, in conjunction with Israelis, backdoored embargoed arms through a crooked Iranians arms dealer to provide Iran, our erstwhile enemy, with weapons to fight a war with Iraq, our erstwhile ally, and in exchange, Iran would get the hostages released that they had ordered taken in the first place. Or at least, that was the plan. The hostages were not released for the arms sales. In fact, they stayed hostages for some time until clandestine ransom payments were made over the years the Iranian arms dealer, went on for several years until someone figured out that the guy the CIA picked as a moderate facilitator was in fact a con man and probably in cahoots with the Iranian government all along. The only thing that did come out of the deal were several million dollars, perhaps as much as $2 billion, that couldn't be used anywhere for anything legal. Until Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Ali North came on the scene. an American hero... And Ali had one brilliant idea. We get the warhead, and we hold the world ransom for... One million dollars. No. His plan was to take the illegal arms sale money and use it to fund our illegal actions in Nicaragua. Either plan is equally stupid, but that one was the one that we did. Now, by 1986... Leaks were screwing out the edges of the scandal and it fell apart big time when an Air America flight was shot down over Nicaragua full of guns and CIA agents. Again, from the Wikipedia entry, quote, the operation was discovered only after an airlift of guns was downed over Nicaragua. Eugene Hassanfuss, yeah, that's not a CIA name at all who was captured by Nicaraguan authorities after surviving the plane crash, initially alleged in a press conference on Nicaraguan soil that his two coworkers, Max Gomez and Ramon Medina, worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. He later said he did not know whether they did or not. The scandal was compounded when Oliver North destroyed or hid pertinent documents between 21 November and 25 November 1986. During North's trial in 1989, his secretary, Fawn Hall, God, she was hot testified extensively about helping North Alder shred and remove official United States National Security Council documents from the White House. According to the New York Times, enough documents were put in a government shredder to jam it. Sir, it appears to be jammed. Jammed. When it was all said and done, 14 administration officials would either be charged, convicted, take a plea deal, or testify in exchange for immunity in the scandal. These included the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, two high-ranking CIA officials, and of course, Ollie North. There was ample evidence that Reagan and then Vice President George H.W. Bush had knowledge of the original plan and circumstantial evidence to prove that they were aware of the cover-up, but neither were ever indicted or impeached for their actions, and for his part, Reagan claimed he couldn't remember what happened during key times of the cover-up and the original plan. And Bush, when he became president, pardoned Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger, effectively ending the investigation before it could name him and Reagan. Coincidence? Of course it was. And this is not the only scandal Poppy Bush was linked to in the 80s. Surprise! And this scandal allows us to segue into the financial problems of the 80s. In the early years of the Reagan administration, regulatory changes were made in the non-profit savings and loans of bank, sector of banking, allowing SNLs to carry way more debt than was backed by their cash reserves. It's an oldie and a goodie in scandals and, and economic crises. And when the inevitable collapse came, the bushes were neck deep in the fallout. From the website rationalrevolutions.net, quote, There are several ways in which the Bush family plays into the savings and loan scandals, which not only involves many members of the Bush families, but also many other politicians. Jeb Bush, George Bush Sr., and his son, Neil Bush, have all been implicated in the SNL scandal, which cost the American taxpayers over $1.4 trillion. Well, that this alone was one quarter of our national debt at the time. Between 1981 and 1989, when the Bush family finally announced there was a savings and loan crisis to the world, the Reagan and Bush administration worked to cover up the savings and loan problems by reducing the number and depth of examinations required of SNLs, as well as attacking political opponents who were sounding early alarms about the SNL industry. Industry insiders were well aware of the significant SNL problems as early as 1986 that they felt would require a bailout. But this information was kept from the media until after Bush had won re-election, a uh, run election in 1988, Jeb Bush defaulted on 4.56 million dollar loan from Broward Federal Savings in Sunrise, Florida. After federal regulators closed the SNL, the office building that Jeb used to 4. size, 4.56 million to finance was re-appraised by negotiators at 500 thousand dollars, which Bush and his partners paid the taxpayers had to pay back the remaining 4 million plus dollars neil bush was the most widely targeted member of the bush family by the press in the snl scandal neil became the director of silver savings and loan at the age of 30 in 1985 3 years later the institution was belly up at the cost of 1.6 billion to the taxpayers to bail out not surprised no few people were man there were a lot of crooks in the 80s and a lot of them were on wall street And they were busy in the 80s. I mean, there are a lot of crooks now, but back then, some of them were just so blatant about their criminality that you couldn't ignore it no matter how much you tried. And people did try. But a few of these fuckers were so corrupt, so over the top, they forced the system to do something about them. Crazy. These summaries I took from Investopedia from some of the biggest offenders. There's Michael Milken, the junk bond king. Milken was indicted on 98 charges of securities fraud in 1989. He pled guilty in 1990 to six felony counts of securities fraud and conspiracy and was sentenced to 10 years at a federal minimum security prison and was barred for life by the SEC from working in the securities field. He, uh, he served two years before being released with a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Ivan Boesky, considered one of the richest stock market speculators in the late 1970s and 1980s, Ivan the Terrible was arrested in 1986 for insider trading. He paid $100 million in penalties and served three years in prison for betting on corporate takeovers, using inside information, and illegally manipulating the stock. He was also barred by the Securities and Exchange Commission from the world of trading and acted as a government informant on other financial interests and malefactors, including Milken. He was the real-life model of the fictional Gordon Gekko in the film Wall Street. Bosky was also notorious for a commencement speech he gave at the University of California Berkeley School of Business Administration in which he stated greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that. I think greed is healthy. You can still be greedy and still feel good about yourself. And then there's T. Boone Pickens, who got his start. The guy's name was actually T. Boone fucking Pickens. And of course, he got his start in the oil and gas industry in the 1950s. But he soon realized the potential in acquiring oil companies. And by the 1980s, Pickens was known as a takeover specialist and corporate raider. His business tactics were said to put many independent oil producers out of business, throwing thousands of people out of work. He was also accused of Greenmail, launching a takeover bid, then getting companies to buy back their shares from him at a premium in exchange for promises. He would just go away. Unlike the others of the list, Pickens was never actually charged, much less convicted of any actual crime. But his arguably unscrupulous ways caught up to him in the mid-1980s. Mesa Petroleum ran into financial trouble, ironically became a target of corporate raiders, and was finally sold. The new management promptly ousted Pickens in 1997. By the way, just a little catch up, Milken was pardoned by President Trump in February of this year. After prison, Bosky enrolled in the rabbinical studies and became involved in projects like helping the homeless. Since then, Ivan Boski has stayed out of the spotlight, living quietly in La Jolla, California on the $23 million he received he received in a 1991 divorce settlement from his wife, and Pickens reinvented himself as an environmentalist believe, who believed in pushing green power while also focusing on philanthropic philanthropic causes such as the T. Boone Pickens Foundations. BP Capital closed in 2018, ostensibly because of Pickens' poor health, and he died in September of 2019. His net worth, once estimated at three billion, had fallen to a mere $600 million or so. Poor baby. Another big part of the 80s that I haven't talked about in this episode because I haven't so many others was, of course, the televangelist and the moral majority. Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Here's the topic. It was neither moral nor a majority. Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, the slew of minor players and hucksters fucking Oral Roberts telling his sheep that they needed to pay out or God would kill him, and then they missed their fundraising goal and God didn't fucking kill him. It's no wonder I'm an atheist. I mean, this was just one more support in the foundation of Reagan's America that collapsed under the weight of all the bullshit being piled on it. But if you wanna know when the 80s officially died, the exact moment in time it all fell apart and the feel good of time of the decade collapsed for once and for all, then we need to go back to the music business. In 1989, the one scandal to rule them all broke and all the neon and hairspray in the world could not put the decade back together again. Blame it on the rain that was both fall, falling. Blame it on the star night. Whatever you do, don't put the blame on you. Blame it on the rain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, this one just always gets me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to take a minute to compose myself. <laughs> From a November 1990 article in the LA Times, quote, "Millie Vanilli's Rob Pilatus admitted Thursday in Los Angeles that neither he nor partner Fob Morvan sang a note on the duo's multi-million dollar selling 1988 album, Girl, You Know It's True. Pilates' admission came after the pair was fired Wednesday by their German producer Frank Farian and after officials at the National Academy of Recording Arts and Scientists said they may review the group's 1989 Grammy as Best Two Artist. Millie Vanilli could lose the award, an unprecedented action. This week's rapid-fire string of relevations capped several months of behind-the-scenes tensions between the affor- performers and the producer, probably ending one of the most successful por- performing and recording teams of the video era in pop music. Girl... You know it's true, Millie Vanilli, who. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Here's the topic. Where neither Millie nor a Vanilli could not sing. Indeed, they could barely speak English. From the Wikipedia our entry on this, quote, Beth McCarthy Miller, and then an executive with MTV, said the deal was English language skills when they came in for their first interview with the channel stirred doubts among them, those present as to whether or not they had sung on their records, unquote. At a show in Connecticut in 1989, the record started skipping, and I swear I'm not making this up because the irony is so ironic, has to be true, on girl, as part of girl you know it's true, it just said on girl, on girl, on girl, and never got to it's true because it wasn't true. That's the universe telling you trying to hang it up, my friends. And this whole thing was just a big fucking symbol for what was wrong with 80s music and the 80s in general. The producer who dreamed up the entire scheme fired Rob and Fob and he said later at a news conference, "Quote." that he was forced to go public with the revelations when Pilatus and Morvan demanded to sing on the follow-up to Girl You Know It's True. I said, no, I don't go for that. Sure, they have a voice, but that's not really what I want to use on my records, Farian was quoting and was saying. At the press conference, Farian said that the idea to hire Pilatus and Morvan as frontman for the band came to him when the two arrived at his studio shortly after the recording of Girl You Know It's True. Todd Headley, who represented Millie Vanilli for the management company of, uh, of Gallon Morey Associates from August 1988 to August 1989, said anybody who had ever worked closely with Millie Vanilli had known from the get go that these guys do not sing their own material, he added. When I came on board, everybody the record company official, Arista and BMG, knew it. Everybody in the management company knew it. That's why most of their employees were forced to sign a confidential clause binding them to stay silent. But Arista executive vice president Roy Lot said that his company was never aware of the cover-up. There's no way anyone could have known whether they could sing or not. He said in a phone call, a phone interview from New York, "We're merely a distributor of the records in the United States. No one from Arista was ever in the studio when they recorded it. Rob and Fob and Frank assured us they sang on the record." Lot said that the label is unconcerned about the revelation and plans to distribute Farian's new music. Lott has heard some of the record already and he said, Frank has my full support, unquote. Rob and Fob lost their Grammy, the producer kept his, and he kept making albums, the record company made a shitload of money, the black guys became a laughing stock while they made other records for themselves they just never quite sold. They appeared as themselves in a few TV commercials as the butt of a joke. Rob turned to drugs and he died of an overdose in 1998. Fob did a few solo albums but wound up working as a DJ in LA. The actual singers of the songs that Milli Vanilli did release released an album in the early 1990s in Europe. It hit number four on the Germany charts but was never released in the states. The producer himself lives in Florida today. And that is the story of the 80s in a nutshell. A lot of white people got rich off black people and black culture while the black folks got crumbs. Unless you were Bill Cosby or Michael Jackson. But you know what? The less said about that, the better. So, what have we learned from the 1980s? Absolutely nothing. Exactly. We had this entire decade of rampant consumerism and blatant corruption covered by a thin veneer of pop culture happiness and excessive makeup. And we learned nothing from it. Well, some people did learn a few things. For example, our current disaster-in-chief learned that if you're a star, they'll let you do it, and he was right. America has always had a problem with its culture and its worship of celebrity money and excess. The 1980s was where this cultural can- cancer was right out there for everyone to see it and instead of stepping back in disgust, we simply changed how we consumed it. My generation affected disdain for all of this but in our hearts, we wanted it too. We wanted our decade of excess just like the boomers had in the 80s. But being Gen X, we had ours in the late 90s just to see it all blow up on September 11, 2001. We relived the political and financial corruption in the late aughts, and then say the whole, and saw the whole fucking thing explode again in 2008. Then we elected a young black guy and dumped it in his lap and said, here, you fix this shit that's been going on for, you know, a couple of decades now. And then the boomers rushed back in and left a whole bunch of Reaganite dickheads to make sure he couldn't really do anything to fix it. Not that Barack was all that keen on fixing the real problems of the 80s, he'd been infected with the ideology of unfettered capitalism from the 80s, too deeply to, and too many money men surrounded him, and he believed that the market would fix itself with just a little help from the government. And they were f- so fixated on fixing the market, they missed regular Americans who grew up watching Robin Leach showcase fucking douchebags. <laughs> Welcome to television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another dazzling Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Meet the stars. They saw so many champagne witches and caviar dreams that when the time came, they wanted their own rich douchebag, a low-rent Reagan of their own, and they found it in the most 80s man to ever come out of the 80s, a man who personified the worst parts of the decade, embraced all the wrong lessons, and latched on to the one true lesson, the fundamental truth that Reagan taught us all. If you're rich enough, famous enough, and corruptive enough, you can make a lot of money and get really powerful, even though you personally are a fucking idiot. And that's the difference between the Gipper and the dump. The Gipper had a bunch of people around him who were corrupt as fuck to be sure, but they were also highly capable. Same of George W. Bush, who was as stupid as Trump, maybe stupider, but had people around him who were evil, but highly skilled. But today, well, you all know how this is working out. Yeah, I grew up in the 80s, and you know, like most of us, I kinda thought that Reagan in the 80s were great. Because back then, I wanted the rock star life, limos, girls, to be skinny and have good hair while I jammed on MTV with my band. Do you know what I got? Like the majority of America, I got a shitty job, a lot of debt, a terrible healthcare system, Millie and Millie fucking Vanilli. I got Bill Clinton's glad-handed neoliberalism and half ass reforms, Bush's forever wars, Obama's timid idea of hope and change, and Donald fucking Trump. All because a bunch of rich fuckers wanted to be richer and used a guy who made movies with a fucking monkey to do it, so instead of champagne wishes and caviar dreams, we've got economic collapse and a goddamn plague. Sorry, guess I'm just not very good at those so uh, win one for the Gipper speeches That is it for our show this week. We will be taking next week off because we are coming back in two weeks. With our five-year anniversary show, fuck! How have I been doing this for five years? If uh, for some reason you want to know how I'm doing during all the in betweens, you can listen to the Splintered Isolation. That's our Corona Cast right here in this feed for now. Also, shout out to our friend Marley and, Jer- Marla and Jeremy who had me on their Corona Cast. Just checking in. See the show notes for a link. Jeremy's a big wheel over at the LPN Network with the adventures of Danny and Mike. So check that out. Rate, review, follow Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, all that good stuff. You know the drill. So for me, Dave, not a Vanilli, soap producer, not a Vanilli Gavin, and all the fictional lip syncers on this show, we want to say, you got to blame something. So we say, blame it on the Reagan. Yeah. Sorry, I, I wish I hadn't done that. We'll see you all in two weeks. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Salsa <laughs> kings.